This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, which is an independent, nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. Over the past 30 years, ADST has produced the largest U.S. diplomatic oral history collection, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that help shape foreign policy. Please go listen to more at ADST.org, American Diplomacy, warts and all. The following podcast is from a 1990 interview with Dean Dezikis. Mr. Dezikis was stationed in the U.S. Embassy in Athens, Greece from 1973 to 1975. During Mr. Dezikis' tenure in Athens, the Yom Kippur War broke out in between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt. The fighting lasted from October 6th to October 25th, 1973. This war led to approximately 450 American tourists getting stranded in Egypt. Mr. Dzikis and the embassy in Athens were then tasked with getting these tourists out of Egypt and back to the safety of Greece. The first-hand account features a big-money transaction, some disgruntled boat guests, many funny anecdotes, and even a chance encounter that could have ended the war's ceasefire. Please enjoy this incredible account of Dean Dzikis and the Mediterranean's only cruise ship during the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War, uh, October of 73, and uh, we were in Athens, and we got a message from the department, I think, that indicated that for about 450 Americans had been stranded in uh, Egypt, in Cairo, when the war began. These were tourists who were in various parts of Egypt, and they'd been brought to Cairo uh, and collected there, and they needed to be evacuated, and uh, we were told to send a consular officer and to find a ship, uh, I guess, to evacuate them. And so the administrative section found a Greek, uh, being October too, it turned out it was difficult to find, uh, you just don't go down to the harbor in Piraeus and say, give me a ship which can carry 500 people. They'd all gone to the Caribbean, as I remember it. By that point, the cruise season is over. So they were, the, uh, they found a ship, the admin section located a Greek ship that was uh, filled with Greek tourists primarily, and as I remembered, it was coming to Cyprus or near in the vicinity of Cyprus. So I was told to fly to Nicosia. Now at this point, the war, I think at this point though, the ceasefire had gone into effect. Sharon had crossed the uh, canal and cut off the, the Egyptian Third Army or Sixth Army or Third Army. The Sixth Army was Stalingrad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so there was a ceasefire, but the Americans were still stranded there. And so we literally chartered this ship out from under the uh, the people who were on it, the Greek ship owner, of course. I think as I remember it, now some of this may be uh, somewhat embellished, but as I remember it, the department typically, first of all, said send a consular officer. In fact, several would have been the right thing to do, but uh, we could only send one. Uh, the second thing was that the department told the admin officer, find a ship, we don't care how much it costs. And so he located this ship and said what he needed it for, and the ship owner said it was going to cost $500,000. And when he notified the department of this, they said that's too expensive. Uh, after having said we don't care how much it costs, find a ship. Then when he told them that it was the only ship available and he thought he could get it for less. I think he got it for $450,000 or something. So we chartered it. Now, this was for about two days. 
So I was told then to fly to uh, Nicosia because the ship was going to be diverted from wherever it was cruising and was coming into Limassol, the port in Cyprus. So I, I got to Nicosia and then went by car to uh, Limassol, and the ship had had come in, and the Greek passengers had all been told they were just going to have to find their way back to wherever they were, uh, the ship owner having taken his $450,000. And then we were supposed to leave immediately from Limassol to go down to Alexandria. The Americans were going to be brought up from Cairo to Alexandria on buses or on the train, and the way they would meet us. A couple of things were, of course, we had to get the, the Israelis the Syrians and the Egyptians had all declared a zone of hostilities, and that was where the insurance got complicated because we were going to be sailing through a war the zone. We couldn't put airplanes in to yes, that's right. And as I remember too, the Syrians and the Egyptians both said, once we notified them this is what we were doing, they both said, yes, that's fine. The Israelis never said it was fine, never said they could guarantee, as I remember, just said, they sort of took note of the fact that we would be going through and said they weren't responsible beyond that, which I thought was pretty interesting. Well, as a, then the problem was getting the Greek crew to agree to go down there because apparently the ship owner hadn't calculated that, that a lot of the crewmen didn't want to do this. And so I spent the next, it seemed to me, 12 or 15 hours in the hotel with a couple of the executives listening to the, 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 well, waiting while some so-called sort of senior captains from the company went out to talk the crew into going. And by talking them into, apparently they, they threatened them with losing their jobs, never getting another sailing job. They also gave them a, supposedly another month's pay as a bonus. Uh, and eventually, the, enough of the crew agreed to go, but none of the, well, three stewards and one cook went. This is on a 10,000-ton passenger ship, the Knossos, in fact, as I remember it. Uh, the crew went, the captain, the first officers, and then all you know, enough engineers and others to run the ship, but no, but three stewards and one uh, one cook. So we left from Limassol in this 10,000-ton empty ship. So we sailed on down to Alexandria, and when we arrived in Al and the crew, I got to be fairly friendly with the crew. So one of these fellows, as we approached the harbor in Alexandria, was explaining to me how the uh, King Farouk, his father used to tell him about how when King Farouk was still king in Egypt, he used to block off the very narrow entrance to the harbor and water ski with one German mistress under each arm, skiing along behind this motorboat with the entire harbor brought to a standstill so he could sail back and forth. So, oh, the other thing is, on the way down there, as I remember, the jet flew over extremely low, and uh, what appeared to be either a Syrian or Egyptian jet, because it was a Soviet fighter of some sort, and saw what we were, and then went on and, and didn't bother us. And the Greek crew at that point ran up and started painting Greek flags on the deck and hauling out extra Greek flags and stretching them over the lifeboats so that from the air you could see that this was a Greek ship and not by any means an Israeli or an American ship. Uh, so off we went, and we got to, to into the harbor in Alexandria, and it was the most god-awful thing I've ever seen. The Americans were there, and they were just brought aboard up a ladder onto the ship, 
And as they came aboard, I was thinking what I needed to do was collect their passports and start to make up a list, because one of the things the department and everybody in Washington wanted was a list, obviously, of who these Americans were. And the first guy who came aboard, I still remember, it's sort of a 40-year-old American executive type, pretty affluent. Uh, as I w approached him, I said, I'm from the American Embassy in Athens, and uh, could I collect your passport? And he said, where are you from? And I said, the embassy. He said, is that the U.S. government? And I said, yes. He said, I'll keep my passport. And that indicated that these people had, like many Americans, as you've probably heard in other contexts, they expected, they had, in fact, unreasonable expectations. And in the days that they'd been waiting, they had developed a certain amount of resentment, animosity toward the American government and toward the embassy in Athens. Well, not specifically the embassy in Athens, but eventually they all came pouring aboard and the captain decided we had to clear out of the harbor as fast as possible. There was a Libyan ship next to us unloading torpedoes, or a Soviet ship, sorry, unloading torpedoes, and next to that there was a Libyan passenger ship, which was the most, it looked like a scene out of uh, Gunga Din or Lord Jim or something, the people were pouring down the gangway and the baggage was just being tossed off the top of the ship down to people who were waiting on the dock 50 feet below. Half of the suitcases, of course, were landing in the water and others were landing on people who were trying to catch them. And, and I sat there with the Greek crew on the bridge, looking over at this thing, and the captain sort of shook his head, you know, made a couple of real Greek gestures and said, we got to get out of here. <laughs> and so we immediately cast off and started off, and the, the Americans had all poured aboard. And then uh, we had, what, I think another 20-some hours before we had got back to Piraeus, first to Crete and then to Piraeus. And so the idea was we were going to spend one night aboard the ship. Everybody would have to sleep. And cabins had to be assigned to these people. And so the, the idea was that the purser would assign cabins as these people came aboard. And so I had a, a microphone and announced who I was, that I was from the embassy, and that we were going to start to assign, uh, or that cabins would be assigned. And about 15 minutes later, the purser came to me and said he was being offered bribes, he was being threatened by people. They all wanted first-class cabins. They all had connections in Washington, and they went, demanded various things, and he said he wasn't going to do that. The only way it would work would be for me to assign everybody to their cabin. So I announced, and, uh, and again, on the good advice I'd gotten from Stu Kennedy in Athens, I tried to divide them into two groups and inform them that we would quickly assign them their cabins, and then we would sit down in two sessions, and I would try to explain to them everything that I understood had happened from the beginning, so that my perception was Americans, a lot of their problems are, are solved if you can tell them what the hell is going on, like waiting in a line. If they know why they're waiting in line, they'll be more patient about it. But these people, of course, had built up a certain amount of resentment. So we turned out there were six or eight or ten groups among this group of 450 tourist, tourist. tourist groups. And, and a couple of them, one was the World Affairs Council from Los Angeles. So these were people who were supposed to be sort of sophisticated, interested in foreign affairs, but also very prominent, affluent, and uh, first-class world travelers, sort of. And they were, all of these people were uh, having a hard time understanding that this now was not a cruise that they were engaged on. It was an evacuation. And so as I started assigning them the cabins, 
we realized there were, I don't recall precisely, but out, say, 450 passengers, 100 of those passengers could get first-class cabins, and then the rest were either tourist class. And the other thing which added to the resentment was that a few days before, or a day or so before, the common market had chartered a ship and evacuated EC citizens. And the Americans had all heard about this. And I gather some of the Germans and Brits and others had, had gone off from the Hilton sort of saying, well, good luck, we're leaving, and off they'd gone. Of course, this ship, as I remember it, that evacuation took place from Benghazi, and the EC people went by bus across Egypt to Libya. And so even though I found that out later, it would have been nice to have pointed out to the Americans that that wasn't maybe as, as wonderful as it sounded. We then started assigning the cabins, and fortunately there was also a Canadian, I remember clearly, a Canadian courier, diplomatic courier's wife, who we had agreed also to evacuate because of some bilateral arrangement. She was about eight months pregnant, and she was feeling very ill. And so what I used was, uh, I used her as an example and said, there were two first-class suites as well, and a couple of people had asked why they didn't get the suites. I said I was assigning this lady who was eight months pregnant to one of the suites and, in fact, sort of challenged any of the people present to question whether that they want the, the suite and she could have the tourist-class cabin, or did they all agree that perhaps she should get one of the suites. And so we then assigned, I tried quickly to say, we'll assign these cabins by sex and age, elderly females getting preference, elderly males second, middle age. This was interesting because, of course, people then started to identify themselves as elderly or middle-aged, <laughs> which added a little humor to the thing. And then single, young single men were last, that sort of thing. And so it quickly, it, not when I say quickly, this probably took a couple of hours. And they all came by me, literally, and got their key to their cabin. And I told them I was responsible. If they didn't like their cabin, they could complain that I had given them a bad cabin. But it seemed to me that that should be the least of their concern since we were now leaving Egypt, and that's what they had all wanted to do. Uh, I also had to explain to them that we were going to charge them for this. And we had this IOU set up, and it was about $100, as I remember it. And some people complained about that. On the other hand, a lot of people rightly recognized that uh, then I, uh, jumping ahead, we assigned the cabins and I told them we would have these two sessions and that's where I sat down with them and said, uh, let me just tell you from the beginning everything I know and maybe you'll then see, uh, all I'm telling you is what we've done. I'm not apologizing for anything, but getting the ship and the insurance and getting the ship down there and throwing off the 400 Greeks who'd been on the ship and then I opened it up to questions, and uh, typically, you know, a lot, some people said, well, I'm glad you've told us this. We understand that it's a lot more complicated than we thought, and thank God we're out of that place. Other people, of course, wanted to know why this one couple I remember specifically were, why the hell didn't the Sixth Fleet come down and get us? What are we paying for if you can't send the Sixth Fleet? I told them I thought, number one, Given the situation, as, as you mentioned, uh, with the, our relations with the Egyptians and our role in, at the same time, which I didn't realize, we were madly resupplying the Israelis, of course, the Egyptians knew all of that. I doubted that they were going to let the Sixth Fleet sail into Alexandria, and I doubted that the Sixth Fleet wanted to sail into Alexandria, number one. Number two, I told them that I thought a passenger ship, given that they were going to have to sail back across the 
the southern Mediterranean toward Crete, that did they want to sail on a destroyer and sleep in the, you know, in between decks and sort of on, on uh, hammocks, or did they want to sleep in a, in a regular passenger ship, it seemed to me. Secondly, uh, they, they asked why they hadn't been evacuated by air, and, as I, and I think the answer to that was that we couldn't get clearance to do it. And we just simply, if they thought that we were in a position to sail, to fly into Egypt without permission, then I thought they were pretty naive. So that went on for a while, but in general, I thought that went pretty well. And then I did the same thing with the second group, and people asked then what was going to happen when we got to Athens, and we tried to anticipate all that. Uh, and then the, crew, the, the owner of the ship and the crew of the ship were very good because they provided an enormous amount of booze, and the weather was gorgeous. And by the afternoon, we were then out in the middle of the Mediterranean with not a white cap in sight, and all of these people sitting out on the back drinking, and it turned into a pretty... And then, then, of course, the stories about what had happened in Egypt. I mean, they had seen missiles fired, and they had seen... And in fact, most of them were in... got to Cairo after the ceasefire had been declared, and I suspect that by today, some of the stories must be really hair-raising. I mean, God knows what they've seen. They had seen missiles fired out of the nearby the hotel, and Israeli planes strafing downtown Cairo, and I haven't read in detail, but I suspect none of that actually happened. Uh, and in any case, then we got back uh, to, to into Greek waters and got back to Athens real early in the morning, and the other thing that struck me is at that point I had just about lost my voice because I spent most of my time going around talking to people, trying to, to, to reassure them. And, and then I ended up having my picture taken. We'd sit around by the swimming pool, and people would come up and have their picture taken with me because this was going to be a great adventure to tell their friends about. And the other thing that was fascinating was human nature. I mean, you see two people, men, I remember, you know, say a 40-year-old executive like the one I described, and another 40-year-old executive, one of whom, for no apparent reason, same sort of economic uh, uh, level, same education, same age, and the one fellow is bitching because he doesn't have a first-class cabin, and the other one, now what I've skipped over a bit is that the great trauma was the meal because, we, as I mentioned earlier, we had three stewards and one cook to serve 450 people. I informed people that they were going to have to volunteer to help if we expected to get any food served and anything orderly done. It, people would have to chip in and help, and amazingly, or maybe not amazingly, a large number of people were willing to volunteer. There were some stewardesses on board, uh, five or six stewardesses, who were terrific about that, and they sort of took charge of that, and the people worked for them. But what I encountered was a situation where you get the one guy saying, why didn't I get a first-class cabin? I'm really resentful of this. I'm going to write to my congressman. And the other guy saying, you want me to go down and wash dishes and help serve the next round? And that's what you can never sort of explain, how people react in a situation like that. And to me, it was really fascinating to see. I thought it was fascinating when we got to Athens at about 4 or 5 in the morning, there were, as I mentioned, a Canadian, some Spaniards, a couple of dual national Greeks and others. So there were representatives, not only our Consul General, Stu Kennedy, and some of the people from the consular section in Athens, but some of the, and I remember clearly, the Spanish Consul General was there. 
And, and when I looked down from the ship as we got in there and saw the people getting off and their luggage getting off, Stu Kennedy and American officers from the embassy carrying luggage for these people, and the Spanish consul sort of shaking hands with them and then driving off, saying, welcome to Greece. And that was the end of the Spanish role in this. And I think that sums up a lot, you know, the, what we try to do and what we see as our role and what a lot of other countries do. It was just an amazing experience. This podcast has been brought to you by ADST. For more, check out our website at ADST.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, warts and all.